You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Well, good evening, church. This will be the last sermon that we have for a while. That's topical. And next week, we'll be moving right back into the book of Mark, which I'm sure that you'll be very ready for because we've had a lot of uh, tough issues that we've preached through for the past couple of weeks. We had uh, racial reconciliation or ethnic reconciliation a few weeks ago, um, which we should all be very thankful for. I want to say real quick for Pastor Dave that we have a teaching pastor, not to flatter him, um, but we have a teaching pastor who is willing to... to um, confront issues that we're dealing with today, um, not shy away from them, even if it means risking offense, because that's a very touchy topic. But we're very thankful that we have a teaching pastor that's willing to help us think biblically through these things. And then last week we had post-millennialism, which was another huge topic that we had to listen to <laughs> to make us think. A lot of information in our minds, which I hopefully have caused us to consider um, what we believe about eschatology and the end things. But today, I will not be talking about either of those things. Um, rather, my aim this evening is to exhort us to holy living in the face of living in an unholy world, as Peter does. And so, I'm going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And so, being as we've not been working through this epistle... And I'm just jumping in halfway through the first chapter. It's important to know the context of this book, right? We need to know who wrote this book, what was the occasion that this book was written, what were the circumstances and for whom it was written so that we might rightly interpret God's word and apply it to our lives. So, so first, the name of this book reveals to us who the author is. In fact, it is even stated in the first verse. It was the Apostle Peter who commissioned this letter, and in chapter 5, we were told that Silvanus was the one who wrote this. So today we look at Silvanus as being a secretary of sorts. Uh, Simon Peter commissioned this letter, but Silvanus wrote the words down. And so, if you would recall, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were the first disciples that Jesus called into his ministry. And Peter was an unlearned Jewish fisherman. And so this is the same Peter who walked on water, right? And as he began to sink, and he became, he became afraid of the wind, and he cried out that Jesus would save him, and the Lord outstretched his hand and saved him. Uh, this is the same Peter who cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant as the soldiers and Pharisees were arresting Jesus in the garden. He also, if you remember, denied Christ three times in the courtyard after they had taken Jesus into custody and this is the same Peter that Jesus beautifully told that Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so though Peter was certainly not without his own faults, as we are, and he is not uh, without his own sin, he was truly cherished and loved by Jesus and was a very prominent figure and the expansion of the church. And you can read through this in the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12. You can see that Peter was the one who proposed that they should add another apostle in the place of Judas. Uh, he preached on the day of Pentecost, and he was the first apostle to extend the gospel 
to the Gentiles. So we see that Peter has a historical primacy in the church, not a papal primacy as the Catholics claim, right? He's not the first pope, but we can see that he was certainly influential in the church and that Jesus' prayers preserved Peter so that even though he would deny Christ and even though he would grow weak in his faith, his faith would not ultimately fail, but he would return and strengthen the brothers by preaching, teaching, and ultimately would do so for us and the whole church by means of writing this letter that we have before us today. And so this book was written by Peter in Babylon, or as they understood it in the letter Rome, sometime in the middle of the first century, around 60 AD. And this letter was dispersed throughout Rome and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And this letter was written for those who were enduring intense persecution. Um, I think it's important, this is why I'm preaching this passage today, because we, like the original recipients, are also enduring um, hostility to our faith. Now, we're not being persecuted as intensely as the Christians in Rome, right? We're not being fed to lions, we're not being crucified, we're not being burned on posts to light up the night sky, but there is certainly an intense hostility to Christian doctrine and society today. So, in light of that, I want to bring our attention to two powerful exhortations that Peter gives the church regarding our minds and our bodies as we live in a world that demands we succumb to their beliefs. And we will see that our minds and bodies are not separate from each other, right? The way that we live is directly influenced by what we believe. So if you would please join me now in standing as a sign of respect for our Lord as we read his holy word. This is First Peter, chapter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I ask that you would help me now to preach your word with faithfulness, clarity, passion, and wisdom. Pierce our hearts with your truth. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work alongside your word for its intended purpose in your people today. And we know you will, for, you have, for, you have, for we have been called and sealed for the day of redemption. So we ask that we use this as a means to instruct and preserve your people so that we may be obedient children and obedient children who are dependent upon Christ. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. And for his sake, amen. You may be seated. All right, verse 13, therefore. Now, if you know anything, you know that it can be very shaky ground to start a portion of Scripture that says, therefore, without reading the previous section. So in coming upon a therefore, we must ask ourselves, what is the therefore? Therefore. And so, because therefore is a, is a link word. This signals to us that we're coming upon a conclusion based upon a preceding statement. 
So real quick, I want to give a very brief summary of verses 1 through 12 so we can know the conclusion Peter is bringing his listeners to in light of those verses. So first, Peter calls his listeners elect exiles, right, which has always been a, a, a point of contention for Christians in the West, right, that, that we are elect, but we are also exiles. Here, Peter is bringing encouragement to those Christians who are enduring persecution and remind them that they are certainly God's elect. I think we see a picture of God's election in Ezekiel 16, a beautiful picture of God choosing the people of Israel. If you read the rest, the entirety of 16, you'll see it's also very harsh judgment on people who are adulterous. So if you want to feel the weight of your sin, read Ezekiel 16. You will feel it. But as always at the end, he goes on to talk about the covenant that he has made, and he will be faithful to it. But the picture we see in election is that of a child who has been born and has been abandoned by the nations, left out in the hot sun, wallowing in blood, again hated by the nations. And God comes by and sees her, picks her up, cleans her, cares for her. And then when she comes to age, he makes her his bride and adorns her with jewels and fabrics and gives her all the spiritual blessings. And so that is for us today. That is the picture we see of election for you, that you are loved by God. You are like a child left out in the desert heat, hated by the nations and the world around us. But our Lord loves you. He called you to himself. He chose you and you belong to him. And by necessity, or those who have been called out of darkness, which is us, and into light, will now be hated by those who are in the dark, because light exposes darkness. Righteousness exposes people's sin. And so we're reminded that we belong to a heavenly kingdom, right? That we are exiles, we're sojourners in this land, that we are elect, but this is not our permanent home. We belong to the heavenly kingdom. And in second, he reminds them that they have been born again to a living hope. It's a hope that lives because Christ lives. And he says they have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept for us in heaven, which is being guarded by God's power. Then he reminds them that there will certainly be trials, right, as a result of living in a world that hates God. And then he shares with them how much God cares for them, that God had sent prophets to them, Right, telling of the coming and suffering Messiah. God has given them preachers who have traveled the world to be sure that the gospel would reach them. And that God's redemptive work is so miraculous that angels long for nothing other than to gaze upon what God has done and is doing in the redemption of his people. And so hopefully that's encouraging for you, that as you remember that you are elect, that you are chosen by God and he loves you, and that he will not forsake us. And the work he's doing now is so beautiful that angels long to see it unfold. So therefore, in light of those things, prepare your minds for action. Literally, it reads, gird up the loins of your mind. Now this is military talk. Girding up the loins was an ancient custom that people entering into battle would do. They wore long robes, right, that would flow in the wind, and these long robes uh, could cause them to trip over themselves. It restricted their agility. And so in order to keep themselves from stumbling about or making themselves vulnerable to those who they were attacking, they would cinch up their robes with a belt around their waist so that then they would be freed up to enter into battle with confidence that if they should fall, it would not be by their own ignorance. 
In girding up their loins, they are preparing themselves for action. But here, Peter is not referring to physical robes. He is referring to the robes of your mind, right? To prepare our minds for action. This gives us a picture of the work that is to be done by the Christian. We have a Christian race to run. And just as those who cinched up their robes would run into battle, we too ought to prepare our minds for the spiritual battle that we engage in as believers. And the battle that we enter into begins in our minds. Contrary to what many Christians believe today, based on what we see on TBN and in Christian bookstores, God puts a very large emphasis on the mind. Romans 12, 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then also in Ephesians 4, 22-24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, why is there such a large emphasis in Scripture regarding our minds? Well, spiritual warfare takes place in the mind. Satan is called the deceiver, and deceiving is to lead astray. And you can lead someone astray by giving them false information. Satan is also called the father of lies. What is a lie? It's false information. You could call him the father of false information. It's the same thing. And so false information has led to the damnation of many people. Lies have given birth to many destructive heresies that have plagued the world throughout all of history. Spiritual warfare ultimately takes place in our mind. It's a battle for truth. It's not the ghost stories that we see on TV. It's not the hauntings that you hear about. Spiritual warfare is of a far greater significance than flickering lights or the things that may go bump in the night. It's of an eternal significance. And the information we believe determines how we will live and where we will spend eternity. We see this in Genesis 3, right? When we see Satan's deceptive tactics used clearly, the father of lies delivers deceptive information to Eve. First, he planted the seed of doubt into Eve's mind. He asked her, did God really say? He caused Eve to question what God had clearly commanded her. Then later he outright denies God's word. He he told Eve, you shall not surely die. It was a lie. And so the result of believing deceptive and wrong information was disobedience. And he does this exact same thing today. Not to us individually, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not God. He can't be everywhere at once. But there are individuals who are influenced by the prince of the power of the air that believe his lies, and it passes down from one person to the next. People are vessels that are either to be used by God to teach truth or the devil to teach lies. And the truth we hear will produce good fruit, and the lies we hear will produce bad fruit. 
And there's a progression from the information we hear uh, to how we live and the affection we have for that information. Uh, John MacArthur puts it this way. The Bible gives us information. That information becomes our belief. That belief becomes our conviction. And that conviction becomes our affection. And this affection is what causes us to say that we love the law of God and that we love his word. Right? We're informed by his word. We believe his word. That belief becomes a conviction as we're convinced and seeing it's true and seeing all the wisdom and glory of God that's put on display within it. We then can rejoice and say we love God and we love his law. We can say with confidence his word truly is a lamp to our feet. And it leads us to rejoice as we sing. His word is truly the sword to fight off the cruel deceiver. God's word is truth. And we ought to prepare our minds for action by making a practice of the constant study of his word so that we can discern what is right and what is wrong. But as I mentioned before, right information produces good fruit, right? And wrong information produces rotten fruit. And sadly, we see that playing out in many churches today that are bending the knee to the demands of the world as they walk in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we see a natural progression that the wicked do whenever they listen to the counsel of the wicked, or when people walk in the counsel of the wicked. We see first... The man who is not blessed, what what does he do? He walks in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he takes wrong information from them. He takes wicked counsel from them. Then he goes on and he stands in the way of sinners. That wicked information he has received has now become his belief as he stands with them. And then he sits in the seats of scoffers. So as he sits, it signifies that his belief has become his conviction, right? He's convinced of it. He's resting on it. And you can conclude that as he sits with scoffers, he will be scoffing with them. His conviction has become a godless affection as he scoffs at those who practice godliness. If the church takes counsel from the wicked, they will scoff at believers who walk in righteousness. And as God's word says, they are not blessed. Instead, it says that those who are blessed They delight in the law of God, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And the law of God here is interchangeable with the word of God. And there are people today that call themselves Christians that have not girded up the loins of their minds. The church's robes are too loose. Christianity, as I have already mentioned, is an intellectual religion. Right? It's certainly supernatural. I, won't, I don't want to take away from that. It certainly is. Right? The Holy Spirit supernaturally works alongside the truth that is clearly revealed in God's word and produces fruit in us. Right? The Holy Spirit works supernaturally along ordinary means. But there are certainly emotions that come to us when we contemplate on what the Lord has done for us. It has become, it has become a trend today that many Christians ignore the mind altogether and live solely for the emotional experience. They are 
anti-intellectuals. And as a result, the church's robes are too loose. They have not girded up the loins of their minds, and the visible American church has been accepting of nearly every wind of doctrine and even doctrine of demons that are promulgated through human instructors, who, as the Bible says, are hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared. One example is Gnosticism. Now, I know we don't deal with this in this church. I think we're all very aware that Gnosticism is bad. We're talking about this in 1 John right now. But it's good to be reminded of this because it's so prevalent in our society today. It is running rampant in churches. And so Gnosticism is derived from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnosticism is the belief that you have access to hidden knowledge or a certain spiritual enlightenment. And it's taught that this special knowledge can come from dreams, visions, and prophecies. And Gnosticism sets itself over the sufficiency we have in Christ and his word. It's, it's dualistic, which means the material is bad and the spiritual is good. They're set against each other. And they believe that their personal spiritual experience trumps anything in this material world. Remember, the Holy Spirit works alongside ordinary things. They believe it is of greater importance and value to them to experience these Gnostic things. And closely related to Gnosticism, you will usually find emotionalism and mysticism. And this is a deeper, higher religious experience based on personal intuition. And this too has been welcomed in the visible church. Mystics are dependent on some truth to be revealed from them from heaven by way of a vision or an emotional experience. It is a deeper spiritual knowledge that we must open ourselves up to and ascend to. And if we aren't willing to open ourselves up to that, then the claim is that we will be missing out on special knowledge from heaven. Well, Colossians 2.18, I think, speaks clearly on this says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. Here we are told that people look to angels, and if they do so as mediators between man and God, and we are told that those who rely on visions are puffed up in their minds. They discredit Christ, who is the head. And so, mystics and Gnostics, they appear to be humble, right? They appear to be. You just have to open up and have a good experience. But at the root, it's pride. It's a lack of trust in the sufficiency of Christ and his word as they look elsewhere for signs and wonders to validate their belief. Mysticism is a dangerous practice that ought to be avoided at all costs by the church. And again, as John MacArthur says, at best, mysticism is your imagination, and at worst, you're courting demons. Church, we don't need some secret knowledge to come down to us from heaven. We already have knowledge from heaven in our hands, in his word. It is the sufficient word of God, and it's God's divine revelation to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 which I'm sure you're all familiar with. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Complete, equipped for every good work. Everything that the Christian needs in order to walk a life of godliness is found in the word of God. We need nothing else. And by his word, we can know what is right and what is wrong. How gracious our God is to us, right? That he has not left us dependent on the subjective counsel of sinful men and their self-proclaimed visions or experiences, right? We have a divine written word that holds the entire church accountable so that we may test what we hear and walk in truth. By his word, we may be complete and equipped for every good work we need nothing else. And we ought to take advantage of it and gird up our minds with it. Continuing on in verse 13. And being sober-minded. Now this is not in regards to what we eat or drink, though too much drink is sinful, right? Here Peter is referring to the sobriety of mind. This is running the Christian race with a resolve, thinking rightly and consciously to avoid becoming entangled with the cares of this world and its vain desires. Desires like being accepted by the world, I think we'll qualify. Don't become distracted by or caught away with the cares of this world. This world is, it's fading. And when we get entangled with what the world thinks, or what the world believes, our thoughts don't then rise up to God. When we lose focus of what's pleasing to our God by becoming entangled in the world, our thoughts sink down to those in the world. And we become more concerned with pleasing man than pleasing God. I know many of you, and I know many of your pasts, and I know that you know what happens when you are not sober. What happens? You become tired. You become stupid. You become a fool. When you are not sober, you have no discerning of what is right or what is wrong. You just go. You just do. You don't think. And so the one who is inebriated is not of much use to anyone. They're just going to cause trouble. And so I believe that if we are not sober-minded spiritually, we will likely do more spiritual harm than good. And I don't think it's of little significance that Peter tells us to be sober-minded. Right? Because he too would have known what it is to not be sober-minded. To not think clearly. To be concerned with what the world thinks about him. Right? I think we see that when we see that he denied Jesus. He felt the pressure of those around him. And not having his loins girded and not having his mind sober, he was more concerned with pleasing man and sparing himself. So I think Peter warns us from experience to be ready and to be sober. And in having the loins of our mind girded and being sober-minded, we are told to, continue on in verse 13, set our hope fully upon the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Erasmus took this to mean uh, the hope of the gospel. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. In fact, I think Peter's been very clear that we have a living hope in the preceding verses. But I don't think that's his point. I don't think his point is to talk about the hope we have in the gospel. Now, I think Peter's referring to the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes again in glory to vindicate his people and to judge the world. 
And when Jesus comes, certainly all of the cares and the worries of the world will pass away and the new Jerusalem will come with him, adorned as a bride. When we see this, when we see Christ returning, we will certainly be sober-minded then. We will see how empty and vain everything this world has to offer really is. So in light of that, let's continue to be sober-minded and set our hope on the return of Christ. Peter says to set your hope. This is a conscious effort based on the information that we have already received with our minds. With our minds prepared, with sobriety, we look ahead to what awaits us as a people who belong to the heavenly kingdom. Now, I know it's very easy to get distracted especially in such a divided country with all the things we see on the media and television. We've got sides, we've got Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, all of these things. But church, I just want to help you sober your mind in reminding you that the leaders of those parties did not die for your sins. We do not give our allegiance to them, we give our allegiance to God. Now, we want to fight for peace. We want to fight for our nation, right? We want to fight for justice. We pray that for our nation. But let's be careful and not lose sight of what we have been called to do as the people of God, to live holy lives and to go out and fulfill the Great Commission, to go out and proclaim the gospel in a world that is such, so divided. You can convince somebody of your political stance, right? But if they don't know Christ, they will go to hell. And all you've done is change their mind for a short 70 or 80 years, pledging allegiance to a sinful leader or a sinful party while they die in their sins, rejecting the one who put these leaders in place. So stay focused and stay sober. We have a duty. And with resolve, look ahead at what is to come, right? And to hope, I think, I think we all know this, hope is not mere wishful thinking. The English language, uh, the word hope, carries connotations of doubt, we say that we hope the Blue Jackets will not have any more injured players when the playoffs return. At least I do. I know some of you guys do as well. It's been miserable this year. And I know all of us hope that COVID-19 will stop, that there will be no more effects of people getting sick and deaths, and we hope that there's no more halt on the economy. That's what we hope for, but we are not sure. We don't know what's going to happen. But biblical hope is not doubtful. It is certain. It carries confidence we truly do have a living hope and a living God and so as we read and pray we gird up the loins of our minds and with sobriety our confidence grows and our affections are tuned toward God as we wait eagerly expecting our Lord to come and so as we expect our Lord to come being hopeful waiting eagerly verse 14 tells us as obedient children we are children of God Let's not forget to whom we belong. We are the elect. We have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We belong mind, body, and soul to our Lord. And it is a great privilege to be called a child of God. Jesus poured his blood for you and adopted you as his own. And he has done so for this end, that we would be obedient children. Continuing on in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance or the lusts of your former ignorance. Here we see again a connection between the mind and the body. 
those who are ignorant, that is, those who God has not revealed himself to and called to himself, those who reject the word of God, they gratify the desires of their flesh and are continually being conformed to the image of this world. The rejection of God, the rejection of God is put on display in how they live. But we are not ignorant as we once used to be, right? We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we have the truth of God's word to guide our steps. We see our sin, we turn from our sin, and we do so being led by the Holy Spirit, being conformed to the image of Christ. But we see the wicked, they walk in ignorance and are being conformed to the world. Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They do not know over what they stumble. People will go one of two ways. They will either be conformed to the image of Christ, right? Their bodies will be sanctified or they will be conformed to the image of the world and they will desecrate their bodies and they desecrate their body and defiling the body that was created in the image of God. So there will be a progression in holiness or a regression in sin. Those who have been regenerated in the church or those who have been regenerated, will continue on in sanctification, and those who reject Christ will continue on in wickedness, and we ought not continue on in wickedness or be influenced by those who are being conformed to the image of the world. God forbid that the church today would take its cues from the world that is in deep darkness, a world that doesn't know what it's doing, a world that is continuing on and regressing in sin. The cultures, they shift with time. And with a culture especially like ours, so does their morality, right? Our society believes that morality is subjective. So if they believe it is subjective, then what is the ultimate result? It changes. It will continue to change. Society puts themselves in the place of God, and they become the arbiter of truth, and they get to change it whenever they want, however they feel. Something that is quite obvious to me is that the moral ethic of today will likely be condemned 50 years from now because it's not progressive enough. And I think we can say that because the moral ethic of 50 years ago is condemned today. Every society thinks they're always the right ones. They look at the ones in the past and say, well, they were stupid. They don't know what they're doing. And so as Christians, we ought not take cues from a world that does that, right? We are guided by truth. And a church that shifts along with a godless society proves that it is no church at all. They are not salt. They are not light. They are chameleons willingly being conformed to the image of the world as they approve of the things the world approves of, things that our God hates. Their robes are too loose. They are not sober-minded. They have not set their hope upon Christ, and they are not being conformed, or they are not being obedient children and they are not being conformed to the image of Christ. So let that not be so for us. We are not in the dark. Rather, we are in the light. And unlike the world, we have a true and lasting faith built upon the rock of Christ. Right? So that we may with one voice proclaim with the saints of old the biblical and orthodox truths that we confess together and have confessed for centuries. Right? Things like the Apostles' Creed, which we confessed this evening. A progressive world is never in agreement with its past, but the true church 
is in constant agreement with its profession of Christ as king. It always has been and it always will be. So we should be careful and diligent to test all things against Scripture, ensuring that our thoughts are not being influenced by the world around us. Again, we need to gird up the loins of our minds so that our minds will be cultivated by the truth that is found in God's word, resulting in faith, resulting in hope, resulting in obedience and holiness. This is what Peter goes on to tell us in verse 15 and 16. Peter goes on to say, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we are to be holy as God is holy. Well, what does it mean to be holy? It is to be set apart. Our God is set apart. He is like no other. And as a people bought by and belonging to a holy God, we should be set apart from this world. Just as the people of Israel were commanded to be holy in Leviticus as they were encamped around Mount Sinai, so we are commanded to be holy today. We must not forget the reality that we are surrounded by people who are hostile to God, and we must be aware that we are very prone to learn from those living around us. And if we are not so reminded, we will likely borrow from their corruptions. So God reminds us to be holy as he is holy. We are to be a peculiar people. And we don't take our cues from the world. We take our cues from the word of God. That's where we get our beliefs from. So initially, this is really a terrifying truth, is it not? That, that God is holy. Well, why? Because by our own nature... We are not holy. We have sinned against the holy God. Our minds are not always being influenced by God's word. We don't continually set our hope upon Christ. And we are not always sober-minded. And we know at some point, everyone will stand before a holy God and make account of himself before God. Everyone will have to deal with the holiness of God. But for us, let me ease that fear for you. For those who trust in Jesus, we have been made righteous. Right? God has already dealt harshly with our sin as it was imputed on Christ and he was punished on the cross. And so this confusion between being holy and being righteous, but yet we're still sinners, I want to bring to mind um, Martin Luther's phrase, Samuel Justice S. Peccator. This means simultaneously justified, yet sinner. And so from an eternal perspective, we are justified. We are counted as just on account of the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to us as believers. So from an eternal standpoint, right, in a courtroom, we are just, we are righteous. We have been justified because we've been given Christ's righteousness. Yet, in another sense, while living here on this earth, we still sin. We still miss the mark. And in and of ourselves, under God's scrutiny, we are still sinners. And so while we are simultaneously justified yet still sinners, we are commanded while we're here on this earth to strive for holiness, to be set apart from this world just as God is set apart from his creation. And we do so knowing that our salvation has already been secured for us, right? We don't earn it. 
We don't earn right standing with God based on our works. It has been graciously given to us by the mediating work of Jesus Christ and by him spilling his precious blood for us. And so, being as we have been saved by the grace of God, knowing that we are his children, we prepare our minds for action with sobriety and set our hope upon Christ and not being conformed to this world, we strive to be holy as God is holy. I think John Calvin gives a good example of this. He says, In bidding us to be holy like himself, the proportion is not that of equals, but we ought to advance in this direction as far as our condition will bear. And as even the most perfect are very far from coming up to the mark, we ought daily to strive more and more. And we ought to remember not only what our duty is, but also that God adds, I am he who sanctifies you. Remember that. It is God who justifies you. It is God who makes us just. All the good work that we do is due to God's Holy Spirit that lives in us first. We don't earn our salvation. It's, it's a gift from God, and we ought to honor God by being obedient children as he has commanded us. Now I'm coming up to a close here. I know that I have laid a lot on you all this evening, right? The reality of the Christian duty is quite clear that we are to have minds that are ready to run the Christian race. We have work to do, right? That we should have our minds ready, our judgments sober, so that we may glorify God and be set apart. I have talked a lot about our duty as believers, and I know that that can be dangerous. But I do believe that there is a time and place for that, especially in regards to our sanctification, right? Remember, our, our salvation is monergistic, right? God alone, mono, saves us. It is God alone who justifies us, but we must not forget that our sanctification, though initiated by God, the Holy Spirit, we must remember that our sanctification is synergistic. We are prompted by the Holy Spirit and God's word to do, and so we must be active in our obedience and responding to the call of God on our lives. We certainly play a part in our sanctification while we are here on earth. We need to put off unrighteousness and put on righteousness. We must submit to God's word, but we do so knowing that we aren't doing so for our salvation, or we're doing so because we've already been saved, and we are doing so because we love God and we want to be obedient children. And so now, again, I know I've put a very large emphasis on the mind, right? More work that we must do, that we must study, we must read, pray, that we must be girded up in truth and not believe the lies of the devil. But, but, but listen to me now. If you don't listen to anything else I've said, hear me now. We can study. We can know God's word cover to cover. We can know all the doctrines of the Bible. Our minds can be very large, right? We can be prepared, but if we do not have Christ, then we have absolutely nothing. We need Christ first. We need Christ first. All the knowledge in the world without Christ is empty. It's vanity. I was talking to Bob and Chris Knox about this the other night. I know a few people who know God's word relatively well, right? They know doctrines. They could debate with you. They could say, hey, Mormonism is wrong because of this reason. Jehovah's Witnesses have it wrong here. Catholics have it wrong here. They can, if you put them 
you know, in a debate with an atheist, they would probably wipe the floor with them. They know a lot. I've talked to them a lot. But they're dead in their sins. They're lost. It's meaningless to them at this point. It's lost. They don't have Christ. And so of what benefit is it to have all this knowledge and not have Christ who you can then live as obedient children? And so I'm going to lay this before you tonight. If you have not been actively pursuing holiness, if you've been stagnant, begin now. There is a tendency for us to shrink back from God's word and prayer when we sin, when we know we miss the mark. We, we think that God needs like a, a cool down period. Like, well, I better step back for a while and, and stay away. He's probably angry and mad. And I don't want to take away from the seriousness of sin. Sin is grievous. And we ought to recognize that. But thinking that you should step back for a while and, and not read because you're not good enough, that, that is true, you're not good enough, but that is a lie from the devil that will cause you to step away and push away from God. That's a lie from the accuser. Our Lord doesn't tell us to flee from him whenever we sin, though we may justly stand accused. Our Lord beckons us to run to him, to repent. Because in Christ... And in Christ alone do we have the forgiveness of sins. God the Father will accept you because he has certainly already accepted the Son. Turn to him. If you have neglected your Christian duty, I want to encourage you. Turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. And knowing that we can start now. His mercies are new every day. And we ought to know that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? We can fight our sin being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can know what is right and wrong by his word. And in all those things, we ought to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, all for the praise of his glorious name. Turn to Christ. Start now. Begin now. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the mercies that you have for us as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for your word that we can know the way that we ought to go, that you have shown us truth in it, and I ask that you would help us. And if we have not been pursuing holiness, if we have been living a stagnant life, not guarding our minds or thinking soberly, Lord, help us to do so now as the Holy Spirit calls us to do so. Lord, let us be obedient children. Lord, let us be set apart, not being conformed to this world, but being conformed to the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. As always, help us to be dependent on that grace, never looking to works, always looking to Christ, because in Christ we have all we need. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.